All right, kids ages three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if, you'd, uh, if you've got your Bible with you, if you want to open it to the book of 1 John, that's where we're at this morning in chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's cool. Uh, we have, the text is in your bulletin, in your order of worship. Um, if you don't own a Bible, there's about a half dozen or so on the back table that we'd love to give you. That's our gift. We would love for you to take one of those with you, whether you grab one now or later. Um, good to have the text in front of you. Let's see if I can get this thing to go down a little bit. All right, there we go. So over and over again, as we've gone through this letter since January, uh, it, that John is writing to a church, probably the church in Ephesus, um, what we have seen is tests. Tests for us uh, to, to help us know whether or not we actually have faith. And, and saying that is getting into... Uh, shaky ground in this cultural moment that we're in because of the fact that um, we live by something in this culture called expressive individualism. And expressive individualism teaches us that it is out of bounds to uh, challenge someone's deeply held feelings or beliefs about their own identity, right? That one's identity and how you feel about your identity, your expressive identity that you have individually come up with is unassailable by outside influences. That's just the air that we breathe in our culture. Okay? So the notion that John lays out over and over again, um, that there are tests for someone who claims to be a Christian can really grate on us. Like, who are you to say X, Y, or Z? Now, lest we think this letter is somehow mean or overly negative, we need to remember that, that part of the reason, as a matter of fact, almost exclusive, the reason that John is giving these is not to simply point out who's bad. In fact, that's not his point. His point is to give us assurance, certainty of faith by constantly, no matter how the tests go, driving us back to Jesus. In other words, if the test goes well and we go, hey, I see that in my life, that's true of me, then that leads us back to Jesus for praise. And if we go... I, I actually don't see that in my life, then it's to lead us back to Jesus for repentance, but never is it there for us to just kind of uh, white-knuckle it, to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's always meant to lead us back to Jesus. And so this week we find another one of those, and it uses a well-worn but often misunderstood word, love. So if you have your place in First uh, John chapter 4, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'm going to be reading verses 7 to 12. This passage contains some of the most familiar verses in the Bible, if you've been raised in the church or grown up in the church, which means there's going to be a challenge for you. The challenge is that you're going to think you already got this. You've heard this before, and you can just kind of check out. But let's remember, if, you've, if you're a Christian, that we believe that God's Word is living and active, that it actually is doing something in the midst of this right now. And so let's hear it in that way. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love God one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we need your grace to change us. We need your love to move towards us. We need your spirit to give us faith. And we need the Lord Jesus to rescue us. And so no matter where we are this morning, whether some of us are here and we don't, we, we've never been in church before or, or it's been a million years, others of us are here and we're here each and every week, we have our assigned seats. <laughs> we need the same thing. We need your gospel imprinted on our hearts and your spirit to move to make us alive with Christ. And so we ask that you would do that for your glory's sake, for our good, for the sake of the city. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So, uh, love. We have been told, perhaps you've heard this, love is a many-splendored thing. Uh, We've been told it's a battlefield. I love that song, personally. I love it. Uh, That that we are to to love the one you're with. If you can't be with the one you love. Uh, And we've been told that love is all you need. We have heard that to love something, you have, to, you have to let it go. That love is something you fall into, and likewise something you can fall out of. We have learned that love, the presence of love, pretty much justifies anything. And that its absence vilifies everything. Love is a pretty big deal in our culture. But for all of our attention to it, my guess is, if you're anything like me, it's still a mystery... Right? I mean, think about it. Our society is bent on finding material causes for everything, but we can't seem to bring ourselves to believe, even though we think everything else has a material cause, that love is simply some random concoction of chemicals in our brain. There's something more to it than that. We know it. But if, if it's not that, where does it come from? And at the same time, we can't seem to decide on what it actually is and what it isn't. We, we, have, we say the word as if it's a self-evident expression. Like, it's just that what love is, just everyone knows this. And yet, we argue about it a lot. For most, uh, it is that love is simply affirming and approving whatever someone else does or feels. For others, it's, it's kind of just an exaggerated form of infatuation. It comes and goes with, you know, the, the mood of your gut at the time. So if we're going to understand what John is talking about here, what we're going to need to see is where love comes from, what it looks like, and what it asks of us. Okay? And so that's what we're going to do. That's what your outline brings about. We're going to look at the source of love. We're going to look at the model uh, of love and then the demand of love. And this is what we're going to see. We're going to see this. That God is, in fact, the source and the standard of love. That God is the source and the standard of love. Okay? So let's begin by seeing God as the source. Look down at verse 7. Uh, and if you're new to Holy Cross and you're new to this style of preaching, this is called expository preaching. It's, it's a way in which we literally, I, I'm literally just going to walk you through the text. I'm going to walk you through the text to teach uh, what it's saying and to try and draw out what God is speaking to us today in it. Okay? So uh, it's helpful if you can look down at it so you can tell I'm not making this up. So look at verse 7. John says this. He says, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Okay, So this passage begins with a command, let us love one another. Easy enough, uh, benign enough, I doubt anyone would disagree with it. Sounds like a good thing, especially in church. That sounds good, let's love one another. Of course, we don't know what he means by love yet. Uh, We all assume we think we know, but we probably don't. So 
we'll get to that definition in a minute. Let's leave that command where it is. But the command is actually based on something. The command is based on the idea that love is from God. So let's think about that for a second. So the idea that God is the source of love is actually incredibly important uh, for a couple of reasons. Okay? First, uh, the first reason is that the Bible is clear that God is the creator of everything. Okay? That everything kind of comes from him. That he created all of it. Now that may not seem like a big deal, but it is when it comes to defining a thing. Because if you are the creator of it, you get to define it. If love is from God, then it is his prerogative on what it is and what it isn't. Okay? Another way of saying this is that God is actually the Lord of love. Now, we're going to get to that definition a little later, but the fact of it is important. God gets to define what love is and what isn't. Okay? The second is that if God is the source of love, now listen close because this is a big one for us. If God is the source of love, then it is not, then love is not something higher than he is. Here's what I mean. We have a tendency in, uh, in both uh, Christian, uh, the Christian West and the non-Christian, the secular West, to take a concept and our understanding of that concept to raise it above God and then to, def- to judge him and or define what he could or couldn't do by that. So we take something like love or justice and we place our definition of that up here and we go, if God is going to be loving, if he is going to be just, he must fit our mold. Right? So with justice, we go, um, what justice is, is everyone having equal opportunity. Uh, and so therefore, if God is just, that is how he will interact with people. That everyone will have equal opportunity for X. Okay? The problem is, that's not what the Bible says justice is. And, and, and it then places the burden of proof on God. As if he has to prove that he's just. We say, if God is just, then he will be like this. But the Bible says God is just. It's not a question. It's a statement. And we do the same thing with love, right? With love, we say love means um, letting people be themselves. So if God is loving, he would require nothing of anyone except that they follow their own hearts. And so again, that lays the authority not on God, but on our definition of the concept. But God is the creator. And so that means that we have to shape our understanding of that concept around him, not shape him around our concept. He is the authority to declare what it is. Okay. Now, the last thing before I move on from that, as as God's being the source, is this. Um, John is already throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying that love is the sign of someone being born of God. Now, Here's what that means. John's argument, whatever he gets to the definition, and we lay out, this is what the definition of love is. What we have to understand is that John does not believe that love is natural. You see that? Because it's not true of everyone. It's a test. Uh, Being born of God, if you remember we said this a few weeks ago, is is that work of God to renew our natures so that we can place our faith in Jesus. It's not something that we come by naturally. It's it's a supernatural work of God. Of God. And Jesus calls it being born again. And he calls it that right in the the verses just immediately preceding what Kathy read for us this morning in John chapter 3. So, what John is telling us here is that love, actual love, the love that he's going to define as it's defined by him, is only possible 
through the work of God in our lives. That's a huge claim. And I know it's offensive to some of us. Now, before you disregard everything else I'm going to say, I would, I would say just stick with me because I think we'll understand together why he thinks that is. Okay? Now, let's keep going for now, though. Look down at verse 8. The latter part of verse 8 is probably one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. Uh, even if you're not in a church background, you probably have heard it before. It's very much up there with um, Jesus' words about judge not lest you be judged. We love to throw out that verse, and we love to throw out God is love all the time. Um, but let me, let me talk about what it actually means. The front part of that verse is simply the inverse of what he just said, right? If you don't love, clearly you don't know God. That makes sense. I mean, that makes sense. If love is something that happens when we've been born of God... A lack of love would point to a lack of that new birth, right? That, that just makes sense, at least along his logic. I'm not saying you necessarily have to agree with it. just saying it makes sense given what he said. And so that means that this is another one of John's tests. Love becomes a test to see if we're actually in relationship with God, if you actually are a Christian. And we've heard that before. If you've been here, that was part of chapter 3. He said almost the exact same thing. But what we haven't heard is what comes next, and that is that God is love. Okay, now that phrase, those three words actually are revolutionary. Uh, but, but because we gloss over it so quick, we, we don't get it. God is love does not mean God is loving. God is loving. That's not what those words mean. John could have said God is loving. He could have said God loves. Okay? He doesn't say that. He says God is love. Saying that God is loving means that he does things that are loving. I could say the same thing about most of you, if not all of you. Right? You are loving. But to say that God is love means that he doesn't just do some things that are loving. It means that everything he does is loving. It's essential to his nature. Now, as I say that, some of you are like, Rick, come on. I don't know the Bible very well, but I know enough to know there's a lot of smiting and judgment and God being mean in places, right? Well, you and I, that's a, you know, that's a great point. It's a logical one. It's one that I, I would assume that most of us kind of have as we think about that. But it comes from the fact that we kind of assume that love and judgment cannot go together. Neither, neither the twain shall ever meet, right? They, they can't ever come together. And, and, but if, listen real quick, if you're a parent, and, and a lot of you in this room are, if you're a parent, you know that love and discipline are not antithetical, right? That in fact, we often can see that the most unloving thing one can do for a child is to simply let them go their own way without any shaping whatsoever. That's, that's not loving. And also... Uh, let me lay this out as kind of more of a, of a challenge. There is a really strong case for historical arrogance being at work when we suddenly question the Bible on this point, that God, is love, that God can't be loving because there's judgment. There, there's this historical arrogance that comes in because of our definition of what love must be in the West, which has not been shared. It's not shared of everyone in the world in total, nor has it has it ever been the case throughout time? And yet all of a sudden we decide that our vision of what love must be somehow then defines God. It kind of smells of the cultural imperialism that it denounces all the time. So let me just throw that out there as a way to kind of maybe make you doubt your doubts on that. All right? But the last thing on this before we move on. This notion that God is love is only possible with the Christian understanding of God. 
Now, I know that sounds offensive or maybe arrogant, but follow me. John has said God is love. And he said God is something three times in this book up to this point. He has said God is light, which has to do with his moral character. Okay? In him there is no darkness. He is light. He has said um, God is spirit, meaning he's not physically bound to a place. But in fact, he is, he is spirit. Uh, and now he's saying that God is love. What that means is that that is true of God um, eternally. Okay, it is essential to his nature. But if God is love, then you have to understand that love is a, is a concept of relationship. And so if this would mean that God's love is not, um, cannot be contingent on creation. It's who he is. Okay, now follow me, because I know that that just got real thick. If love is who God is eternally, then it cannot be connected with what he did in time to create all of us and everything in it. It means it must be something that was true of him always. And so the Christian view of God does not seem to have the problem that his loving nature is contingent on creation. Okay? The Christian view of God doesn't have this problem because God is love is only possible if God is a plurality. You see, if God is Trinity, if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all time, one God in three persons, then love can be essential to Him. It can be as essential to Him as light and spirit. But if God is not Trinity, whether that means He's kind of solely one, or if God is kind of an impersonal force, then love cannot be essential. If God is an impersonal force, then it there can't be love in him because love is personal. It's relational. Can there be power? Absolutely. Omniscience? Sure. But not love, not relationship. The Christian understanding of God, though, is that he is relational, that he was already full and needed nothing from us, but creates us in order to join in that relationship of love. That is why God can be the source of love. Because the Trinity, the, the three persons of the Trinity have always been in loving relationship as the one God. Okay? I know that's a little thick, but it's important. Now, God is the source, but he's also the standard or the model. Look down at verses 9 through 10. John says this. In this is the love of God made manifest. All right? So here it is. John knows that everything he has just said is going to raise a question. Right? If love is the test for being a Christian, if love is the test for knowing God, the immediate question that normally jumps into our hearts and minds is, well, what is love? It's the same question that jumped into the mind of the, the, the um, young lawyer who was talking to Jesus when Jesus said that the biggest thing you can do is love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, to which he replied, well, who's my neighbor? Right? It's what we do. It's our, it's our method of self-justification. And so John knows as soon as we say, like, look, love is a test, and you go, well, what, what, what is it then? We're trying to, we're trying to grade ourselves. So, so here's what he says. Here's what love is. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That sounds great. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless we understand the Bible story. Because you see, to say that Jesus was sent into the world so that we might live implies that we're not living. Right? It implies another state. Uh, and that's exactly what the Bible says, even though that sounds weird. Because the, the entire Bible proclaims a reality. That you and I, by nature, all of us, all of humanity by nature, are, um, are, are independent of God. Seeking our own way. Wanting to be our own authority. And the Bible calls that sin. It's not 
breaking a rule. It's being independent of God. And, and you, can, you can be independent of God and be a great rule keeper. You can also be independent of God and be a great rule breaker. And there's probably both in here. I would guess that most of us probably lean a little more towards the rule keeper line of that. But, but, uh, but it doesn't matter. Both are called sin. It's a relational betrayal of God. And the Bible says that what we earn for that sin is death, which is both the, the cessation of biological life, that's true, but also um, the eternal separation from God. So in a sense, since the Bible would understand it, all of us are dead because we've sinned against God. So here's where this love of God is shown. God is the one betrayed, right? God is the one who sinned against. He's the one who has been turned away from. And the Bible says that we are all, apart from him, fine with that. We're cool with that. That apart from God working in our lives, we're fine with being independent of him. But God is not. But God is not. Though he was the betrayed one, he seeks to reconcile us to himself. He knows that we cannot flourish apart from him, so he comes in Jesus to rescue us. So when he says, when John says that love is shown in the sending of Jesus, what he means, listen close, what he means is that the character of love is seeking the flourishing of others unilaterally. In other words, we see that part of the character of love is that it is a commitment, not a contract. It's not born out of, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. It is, an, it is a decision to seek the good of another without regard to their disposition to you. How do we know that? Because that is exactly what God did in Jesus. But John goes on. because That's only part of it. Love is known in God loving us and sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, Now that's a big word. I'll get to what that means in a second. But there's three things on this. First, and this is super important. John says that God's love was the impetus for the work of Jesus. That is huge because if you were raised in the church, you probably had some, you've probably been confused uh, because I don't, I don't know what it is. We just tend to confuse this. We tend to think that I'm a worm and dirt and that Jesus did what he did so that God can love me, Right? That I'm so dirty and sinful that I couldn't possibly have the smile of God. And so Jesus had to come and kind of uh, work, this, work this out so that he could die so that God could love us. But that is not what John says. And that is not what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians. That in fact, it is God's love that was the impetus for Jesus' work. It's what Jesus' work sprang from God's love for us. Okay. Second thing is that love is active and not just a disposition. God's love is seen in an act, not just a warm fuzzy, right? Uh, and lastly, it comes to that word propitiation. Now, propitiation is a very churchy word, and even if you were raised in the church, you may never have heard it. <laughs> it's so churchy that you don't even hear it in church often, okay? That's how churchy it is. Basically, it works like this. Propitiation has to do with the removal of offense, the um, removal of the barriers to relationships so that we can be in unbroken relationship with one another. And, and the problem, the, the reason why John links propitiation is because it has to do with what Jesus came to do. Now, it is vogue in some theological circles in, in the church, and especially if you're into the blogosphere and, and kind of millennial Christianity as it's, as it's kind of talked about now. It is vogue in theological circles to see the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, 
as something that God never intended. And to see it as something God never intended because the idea of sacrifice is barbaric and violence is barbaric and has no place in the, in, in the mind of God. It's not worthy of him. But this verse kind of destroys that. You see, friends, betrayals bring guilt. They always bring guilt. And you know this because you've been betrayed. They always bring guilt. And guilt is like a weight that has to be borne. It has to be carried. Forgiveness is not pretending that an offense never happened. That's lying. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is being willing to bear the offense for the one who's offended you. It's being willing to bear the weight of that betrayal instead of making them do it. If they bear it, we call it justice. But when we do it, we call it forgiveness. And that's what the cross is about. You see, on the cross, what God did is he came in the flesh in Jesus to bear the weight of our betrayal in our place. That he came so that that, that, that guilt, that betrayal, that weight might be completely eliminated in him. So forgiveness, as always, and some of you have heard me say this a ton, is the offended person bearing the weight of the offense for the repenting offender. And that is exactly what happened on the cross. In Jesus, God bears the penalty for sin. He bears separation from God, death, in place of those who have sinned against him. And so that kind of helps us further that notion of love. That love is actually a unilateral commitment to the flourishing of another, even at cost to yourself. That love is, in fact, costly. The last part of this we we need to flesh out is who acts first. Look back at verse 10. John is really clear. Love is not seen in the fact that God responded to our love with his own. Right? It's not that we first loved God. It's that God first loved us. Here are two reasons why this matters. First, John is impressing on us that there is nothing in us that warranted the love of God. Okay? We didn't love him into loving us. We actually earned the opposite. And yet, God moved towards us. In fact, in fact... That seems to be the very way that John wants us to understand the nature of love. It defines, in some way, love for us. That love isn't earned, but it is given. Okay? And this is huge for, our, for understanding our posture before God, as well as how we are to love. Listen to me. You cannot receive love from God in the work of Jesus if you are busy hanging on to your reasons why God should love you. If you're busy hanging on to, I do good things, I go to church, I keep my nose clean, I protect my kids from the world, and this is why God should love me, how will you ever be able to hold the free gift of God and Jesus in your hands? You're too full of everything else. You can't receive love from God if you were trying to achieve love from God. Listen, I know it's scary to be open to the fact that your awesomeness really isn't. I know that's scary. And that you have to let go of it to receive the gift of God in Jesus, but it's still true. The second reason why this matters is that it informs the nature of love. Again, love is shown in God intentionally coming, taking the initiative to come, to bear the wounds that we would give so that we might be reconciled to him. 
it's not just a unilateral commitment that costs. It's a unilateral commitment that costs in which we take the initiative to move into that. We are taking the initiative to move into a unilateral commitment that costs us. Okay? So now we come to the demand. That's the model and the source. Now let's look at the demand. John started this whole section with the command to love one another, right? And he continues it. Here, look down at verse 11 and 12. He says, if God so loved us, we ought to love also one another. Now stop there. This is really interesting. Maybe you noticed it. John has just laid out how God has loved us. And he says, our response to God's love in Jesus should be us loving others. That is not what I anticipated. I don't know if you're anything like me. I would anticipate because God loved us in this way, we should love him. That's not what John says. He says we should love others. He, I would expect, you know, God loves us, we love him back, and we're all good. But remember what this is about. It is about tests that will confirm whether we are actually Christians. Okay? It's that test that will give us assurance that God is at work in our lives. So why others? I'm glad you asked. Here, we'll get, we'll get to it. The answer to this gets to why he says that love is only possible for those born of God. So if you were offended by that or that freaked you out, check back in because we're going to get to it right now. All right? John's point in all of his definition is that love is known as true. Love is known as true when it is costly to the giver. Think about that. He's told us that God didn't love us because we were lovable. He loved us because God is love. Not because we were lovable. Love is known in the very fact that it comes at a cost. And that cost is exacted by the one who is being loved. The cost to the lover is actually being exacted by the one who is being loved. And this is why John says that this is possible only of those born of God. Think with me. Think with me, okay? All of us by nature have a stubborn insistence on looking out for number one, don't we? It's just, it's just, it's perfectly natural to us to, that we need to watch out for ourselves. It makes perfect sense. And I'm not even like totally down on it. I'm just saying like, that is what we do. It is completely natural to, to do that as a fallen human. And so when something costs us, we tend to avoid it. And if something costs us too much, we walk. We walk. But real love, the love that John is trying to communicate to us, the love that we should look for as a test on whether or not we actually have God working in our lives, that love is known, it's seen in the consistent commitment to love when it is costing us, when we are sinned against. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, this proves it, I knew it, Christianity is all about being a doormat, this is why I, have no, I want nothing to do with the church. Uh, not at all, actually, you, you actually miss what love is. Because remember, I said that love is seeking someone's flourishing. Sometimes seeking someone's flourishing means erecting boundaries in a relationship so that they can't just wantingly sin against you. It's not loving to them to allow them to keep doing that. Sometimes it's going to mean calling something, calling something that's going on sin and calling that person to repentance. Sometimes it'll mean simply bearing with someone else because you know that what they're doing isn't malicious. They're not trying to harm you. It's just, it's just them. 
There's no one-size-fits-all approach. I wish there were. It'd be a lot easier. But there isn't. But all of those approaches stem from how God has loved us in Jesus. But here's the kicker. When we talk about flourishing, and if you've been at Holy Cross any amount of time, you're probably so sick of that word, every time I say it, you want to puke. Uh, But when we talk about flourishing, we need to understand flourishing as the Bible defines it, not as the individual does. Okay? It isn't loving to allow someone to drink Drano because they're thirsty and they're convinced it will quench their thirst. Is it? Of course not. It is also not loving to watch someone pursue something that the Bible calls dehumanizing, whether that is misused sexuality or greed, simply because they say, this is how I was made. That's not loving. Now, some of you are thinking, but Rick, I still don't get how this only comes from Christians. I'm glad you brought that up, because that's my last point, so that's super convenient. Um, Listen, we are all, by nature, self-protecting people. You have to be. We live in a world post-Genesis 3. We live in a world that's post the fall. And the world is, in some measure, rigged to harm us now. It is. Because the world has fallen. Harm is real. And so we are all, by nature, self-protecting people. And so if that is going to change, something has to, be, to free us to be willing to give ourselves away. And the Bible declares that the only thing that can do that, the only thing that can free us to give ourselves away, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're going to be willing to give of yourself to flourish others, give of yourself at cost to you to flourish others, it will be because you are convinced that you have been flourished through someone else bearing the cost for you. And so the gospel frees you from self-protection because it says that Jesus bore death for you. There is nothing left that can harm you ultimately because Jesus has conquered death for you. And the gospel frees you from self-promotion because it says that, uh, that Jesus has actually accomplished everything you need. You don't need to get anything more, either before God or others. And so you can give yourself away for others because, and only because, Jesus gave himself for you. If not, listen to me, if not, and I love you and I think the world of you. And I, most of you in this room, I think you're awesome people. You're way better than me. Way better. But if you're not looking to the gospel then as soon as someone isn't able to give you what you think you need, as soon as the cost of loving them becomes higher than the reward, you'll walk. If the gospel isn't freeing you, you will walk. Because it's not worth it. And if the gospel hasn't freed you, you need to get something from others. As soon as you don't, or as soon as you won't, you will stop loving them. But the kind of love that John is talking about is the kind that is completely inconvenient, incredibly difficult, and totally costly. Now, does that mean that love will always look like that? No. Come on. We're not being silly. Like, we know that there are easy people to love. But the test of our Christian faith isn't found in whether we feel sappy towards really lovable people whether we're able to love really well when it's convenient for us. I am awesome at loving lovable people. Awesome at it. I don't need Jesus for that. And neither do you. Which means it's a poor test of whether or not God is working in your life. 
The test of our Christian faith and whether love is there is found when we love people when they are unlovable. Because this is the supernatural love that can only come from those who are born of God. And this is why when loving gets hard, listen to me, when loving gets hard, and I know it's hard, and for some of us this morning, it is super hard. Some of you are sitting next to someone who you you guys are all smiles in here, but you're going to walk out that door and you're going to be at each other's throats. Let's not pretend that that's not going on in the church. It is. It is. When it's hard to love, we don't grit our teeth, white our knuckles, and say, I'm just going to do it. We have got to return to Jesus. He's the source. And if we're having a hard time loving an unlovable person, trying harder is not going to do it. We have to return to the gospel. Because only the gospel can free you to love that person. Only the gospel can do that. We have to return to Jesus. And we return to him. Because God is both the source and the standard of true love. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know that there's some of us here in this room, whether whether we're uh, married or whether we are, um, maybe it's a a parent-child relationship or child-parent relationship or just friends, co-workers, bosses, whatever, that we are just struggling to love. And we're trying hard and we're tired. And we want to walk. But God, you have poured out the love of God in our hearts through the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus. And if that is true, God, then I would ask that you would work in us. Bring us back to the gospel so that we might love Freely, that this congregation might be known as a congregation that loves well, not just those in these walls, but especially those outside of it. And Lord, for some of us here who um, have never been confronted with this idea before, that we actually need to be depending on God, depending on God in Jesus, trusting in Jesus alone, that the things that we've called love probably aren't. And our pride has been stripped away. I, I pray that you would meet, uh, meet us in that with the balm of the gospel. That Jesus is enough. Both to cover our failures and to, it, to be our righteousness before you. Make this church into a loving church, Lord, because of our stubborn and consistent belief in the gospel. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.